Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2. So the word of God this morning is Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Good morning. How are y'all doing? Good. Well, welcome. We're glad that uh, you're here uh, with us. We will be in Ephesians chapter 1, as Mike said, uh, just doing verses 1 through 2. So as you uh, turn there, uh, I will let you uh, kind of do that while I tell a little bit of a story. This past Monday, uh, I gave the staff off just as kind of a break after uh, a long uh, Easter weekend. And, uh, and so most of us uh, had off, but uh, Carl was in here getting some tasks done. And, uh, and so about uh, midday, he sent a text to the rest of the staff uh, and uh, just kind of had some information. And then buried there in the, uh, in the text was uh, uh, mention of the fact that he had seen a bobcat here on the property. Uh, I think our uh, collective response to that was, yeah, right. And, uh, and, uh, and so uh, that was our response until Tuesday. Tuesday, we're all in here for a uh, staff meeting. We're meeting in the parlor and look out the window, and there is this huge bobcat huge, that is huge, huge. huge uh, bobcat. Uh, Jerry wants me to explain huge. As bobcats go, it was large. That's my explanation of huge. So 35 pounds, something like that, which is a large bobcat. Uh, don't think uh, Siberian uh, tiger or something like that. Uh, but it was a bobcat. It was out there just right across uh, in the field. And, uh, and so uh, the staff gets so excited. Me in particular, I get so excited uh, that I start yelling bobcat over and over. Bobcat, bobcat, bobcat. I'm running down the halls. Uh, Carl's not in there uh, with us at the time. And, uh, and so I'm yelling just in case he's anywhere in the building. He can hear me yell, Bobcat. And, uh, and so we begin to run down the halls. By the time we get all the way out the, the doors where the port cachet is uh, on the, uh, the, the old building side, uh, the Bobcat is nowhere to be found. And, uh, and so I've watched enough Bear grills and so forth to know I can track this thing. And, uh, and so uh, we go and we look, and, and there in the soft mud we see uh, some... Uh, Prince and a quick Google search, just like the settlers used to do it, confirmed uh, that it was indeed a bobcat, and uh, and so uh, it was leading underneath the youth portable, the the portable uh, out there, and uh, and so we decide, man, we have to get this bobcat somehow. We have to get it, and so we go inside in order to get some tools because our thought is we're going to pull the panel off of the uh, the portable. And, uh, and just see, just make sure, confirm that it's actually in there before we call animal control and deacons and uh, all kinds of things. And, uh, and so we go inside uh, the, the church, we go into the little electrical room to get some tools to pry off, and then also, obviously, uh, to get some weapons, because, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. And so I have this little t-ball bat, that's my weapon. Zach has a 20-inch aluminum uh, pole, that's basically a little segment, like if you uh, were putting together uh, a little shelving unit in your garage. That's his uh, weapon. 
And, uh, and Tim has a, uh, uh, an extending pole, a pole that's uh, about six foot long or something, but it has an extension, goes all the way out to 16 feet. Quite the weapons that we have. Uh, and meanwhile, Carl just has like a thousand lumen flashlight because someone has to shine a light in there. And, uh, and so we go out there, we pull the panel off, we shine the light. Sure enough, we see the, the eyes of the cat. We could barely just kind of make out uh, its, uh, its form. Uh, you know, Tim extends the pole a little bit and starts poking around in there. And uh, it's making noises. It's agitated and so forth. Somehow in this whole process, Tim and I had taken off our outer shirts. We're just wearing our undershirts. Uh, because again, in case we're going to get in some sort of fight with this bobcat. And I can't tell you just how excited I was at the prospect of trapping this bobcat, which we did not do. In fact, we actually just saw it uh, during theological equipping. Someone saw it out there. Uh, you're in no danger or anything like that. Nobody's ever been uh, attacked and killed by a bobcat in, uh, in uh, North America, according to a couple of people that we've talked to. Uh, but I was, <laughs> I was so excited about the prospect of potentially capturing uh, this uh, bobcat. And I mentioned this story because this is the same sort of excitement that I felt just as uh, we have gotten closer and closer and closer. As we've, we, we've kind of now gone uh, through the book of Mark. It took us about 15 months or so. Uh, we did about five weeks on ecclesiology, that is the doctrine of the church. Uh, then obviously we did uh, uh, the resurrection last Sunday for Easter. And now we're beginning what will probably be about six months, just kind of an exploration of the book of uh, Ephesians. And I'm super excited uh, about beginning that uh, this morning. So as we do, uh, let's uh, take a moment to pray. I'd ask just that you would begin and pray for yourself. Uh, you come in with... Uh, distractions, you come in with uh, concerns and cares, you come in with fears, you come in uh, with uh, sins that you've committed, and ask the Lord to give you grace in this moment to hear his word. And then pray the same thing for those who are around you, whether you know them or not, they come in with all the same distractions and hurts and concerns and cares, and ask that the Lord would give them just a few moments of clarity, free from distraction, an ability to engage his word. And then pray for me that I would be faithful. So Father, we love you. We love your word. It is a light unto our feet and a lamp to our paths and we desire to walk by it and so we're grateful for this season in the life of our church as we uh, get to kind of shine a light into every little nook and cranny of Ephesians and pray that you would uh, bless our efforts, that we would be conformed to the image of your Son as we uh, stare into your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So look at it, uh, Ephesians chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 1. Let's read that. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So we'll begin here with the uh, issue of authorship. Again, uh, Zach mentioned we have a blog up on the website that has kind of an opportunity for you to go deeper with some commentaries and that kind of stuff. So we'll kind of uh, scratch the surface on some of these kind of exegetical issues. But this is a really important one, the issue of, of authorship, particularly because unless you are an evangelical, uh, unless you are someone who is committed to the authority and errancy and inspiration of the Scripture, the vast majority of scholars out there, secular scholars, 
do not believe that Paul actually wrote this book. They believe instead that this is an example of pseudepigrapha. If you've been coming to theological equipping class, uh, you might be familiar with that term. It is a word that means false writing, uh, a writing that is falsely attributed to someone else. And so it would be similar to me writing a letter and then signing Jerry's name to it or something like that. And so that's what uh, the vast majority of secular scholars uh, believe about this book. But I want to spend just a couple of moments because it's so important that we trust this author, that he is who he says he is. It's so important for us that I want to spend a couple of minutes dialing down into why, although pseudepigraphy, although this practice of someone writing something and attributing it to someone else was very common in the ancient world, it is not at all common in biblical literature. In fact, there is no book of the Bible that is an example of this pseudepigraphy. So I want to walk through that just really quickly. How is it that we can know that this type of writing did not make it into uh, the New Testament. How is it that we know that Paul actually wrote this book whenever the author says that it is uh, Paul? So let me give you just a few reasons. The first one, there is this strong exhortation to truth throughout the book. Throughout the book of Ephesians, the author is going to often come back to the idea that we need to be a people who are pushing aside, putting off deception and deceit. And if we are people who are clothing ourselves and living out uh, a responsibility to be people of the truth. That's the first reason. If this is someone who's not actually Paul and they're writing this letter claiming to be Paul, it goes against everything that they are writing in the book. Consider Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 through 15. So that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. You see, there a rejection of deceit and embracing of truth. Ephesians 4.25, therefore having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. You also have the reference to the belt of truth, and on and on we could go with all of these different examples where the author of Ephesians has commended a lifestyle of truth, which would be highly ironic if his very uh, writing of the letter was kind of saturated in deception. That's the first reason that we can reject the idea that Paul did not write this. Secondly, all of the apostolic fathers, all of the, the early church fathers uh, attributed this work to uh, to the Apostle Paul. So if you go back throughout church history and you look at the early church fathers uh, in the second century, third century, and so forth, all of them, without exception, are going to attribute this to being uh, the work of Paul. A third reason, uh, the church had a particular response to this type of literature, this, this type of literature called pseudepigraphy, uh, this falsely attributed writing. And that, re uh, that response was universal rejection. Uh, by and large, the church said, we know this is a cultural practice. We know this happens throughout the Roman Empire, but it does not happen within the church. This is not something that is acceptable within the church. So there is an early church father named uh, Serapion who uh, wrote regarding this book called The Gospel of Peter, which you don't have in your Bible because it was not actually written by Peter. And uh, it was written in the second century. And he says this, Serapion, about this Gospel of Peter. He said, we, my brothers... Receive Peter and all the apostles as we receive Christ, 
but the writings falsely attributed to them we are experienced enough to reject, knowing that nothing of the sort has been handed down to us. In other words, a document that is falsely attributed to an apostle was grounds for dismissing its authority. It's grounds for rejecting it, not including it within the canon, but rejecting it. We see another example of this in, uh, in church history regarding this uh, book called the Acts of Paul. Again, not something that you have in the scripture because it was later found out that this church elder had written this Acts of Paul. And it wasn't actually Paul himself who had written this. And, uh, and so even though this book, the Acts of Paul, was rather orthodox in its theology, unlike the Gospel of Peter, which was uh, heretical, this Acts of Paul was actually an, an orthodox book. Everything that was in there, by and large, kind of corresponded to the rest of the Bible. Uh, and even though this elder did it out of appreciation, as a kind of a, a sign of his respect for Paul, simply the fact that he did it and wrote it in Paul's name meant his church uh, dismissed him as an elder. Uh, they said, your level of deception in this. And so for all of these reasons, we can see, even though the surrounding culture may have embraced this idea of pseudepigraphy, uh, that the church did not. And so when we read that this was written by Paul, we can trust the author. We can trust the author when he says that he is Paul, or in a sense, we can't really trust him at all. And so we begin there with the idea of authorship, that it is Paul, and not just any Paul, but the Apostle Paul is how he refers to himself next. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. So what is an apostle? Well, there's three different uses, three different main uses within the New Testament. Uh, the first use is to refer to the 12 uh, disciples that followed Jesus in his earthly ministry, were a witness to his resurrection, and so forth. That's the first uh, use that you see within the Scripture. In addition to that, there's a secondary use. That secondary use is going to refer to those original 12, obviously minus Judas, uh, and then adding to that a certain number of people who are commissioned by the Lord, including Paul, James, Jesus' uh, half-brother, uh, maybe Barnabas, uh, and a, a certain handful of other people. And so you have this first usage that is the 12. You have this secondary usage that is the 12 plus a few others who are particularly commissioned by the Lord. And then you have a third use uh, which is uh, kind of a non-technical use. It just kind of meant those who were commissioned, maybe commissioned from one church to take a, a, a letter to another church or commissioned to take an offering from one church to another. Uh, it's just a, a general term that means those who have been commissioned and sent uh, for a particular purpose. Paul means it in the secondary sense. Paul means it in the secondary sense of referring to the 12 plus a few others who have been particularly commissioned by the Lord. In essence, what he's doing is making an appeal to his authority there. Lest anyone would be reading this, uh, this book within Ephesus and think, yeah, but who are you? Who are you to write us how we are to live our lives? Who are you to tell us what's right and what's wrong? And Paul's response is, I'm an apostle. Not just any apostle. I'm an apostle who is an apostle of Christ Jesus. I've been personally commissioned on the Damascus Road by Jesus Christ. According to the will of God. That's kind of one of those mic drop sort of moments. Any more questions? What's my authority? My authority comes directly from Jesus Christ and from God the Father. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And next, after that, he begins to address the audience. So now we have authorship, and then he goes into the audience. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. 
So the first way that he refers to them is as saints. Not in the Roman Catholic sense of what a saint is, as uh, some sort of believer who's uh, got some sort of special, uh, super special merit of grace. Uh, some sort of like some of you are saints and some of you are not saints and kind of that uh, sort of sense. No, the, the way that he means it is in the sense that if you are a believer, you are a saint. Those things are synonymous. Biblically, all Christians are saints. All Christians have been sanctified. All Christians have been set apart. All Christians have been declared holy. Second, he calls them faithful. And this is not in contrast to saints. It's not that some saints are faithful and some are not. Again, these things are intended to be uh, synonymous. It's not that there's some sort of inner circle of saints. In fact, most commentaries, if you're reading Uh, on Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Most commentaries are going to translate this not faithful, but just believers. Saints who are believers in uh, Christ Jesus. The idea is that they're just two different ways of describing the same group. Saints and faithful. Not in the sense in which we're perfectly pious. It's not what it means to be a faithful saint but that we've been separated. That's the imagery of being a saint, one who's been separated from something and united to something else. We talked about this a little bit uh, last week as uh, as Zach preached on the resurrection and the idea of being united, the idea of being uh, in Christ. That's the imagery there of being a saint, uh, is being united to Jesus Christ nearly 25 times in, uh, in the next six months. So in six chapters, nearly 25 times, uh, Paul will make reference to this idea of being united with Christ, this idea called union with Christ. It's been called kind of the fountainhead of all of the blessings that a Christian experiences, the fact that they have been united uh, to Christ. We talked about this last week, that all humanity is either in Adam or in Christ. We're in Adam by birth. We're in Christ by rebirth. We're in Adam on the basis of our uh, descent, biological descent. We're in Christ on the basis of our belief. And as we'll see later, election. So we either belong to a kingdom of light and life or a dominion of darkness and death. There is no being on the fence. There's no opportunity for us to be in both camps. You can't be both in Adam and in Christ at the same time. When biblically, the imagery is of being uh, united to Christ, the imagery is being separated. You're separated from the kingdom of this world and united to the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. There's no being on the fence. There's no being uh, in between uh, the different camps. There's no dual citizenship in this sort of sense. You either are a citizen of the kingdom of God or a citizen of the kingdom of Satan in this world. This is what it means to be a saint be in Christ, to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. If you want more on that, I encourage you to go back and listen to last week's uh, sermon and Zach kind of fleshing out this idea of union with Christ. But not only is it addressed to saints and uh, faithful brothers and sisters in a general sense, that is certainly true by virtue of the fact that this is included in the canon and therefore it goes to all Christians everywhere, but there's a very specific localized congregation or audience that uh, Paul is writing to. Not only is it addressed to all believers everywhere, but he's writing it specifically to those in Ephesus. 
So let's talk a little bit about Ephesus. Ephesus was a seaport on the Mediterranean Sea uh, in what would be modern-day Turkey. You can go to it to this day. There's some beautiful ruins uh, and so forth. But by and large, it's a city that is just ruins. But at the time, it was quite a large city. Uh, scholars have kind of uh, vacillated on what the population would have been, some concluding that it was as high as 250,000, which might not sound like a lot to us in a context uh, where uh, McKinney is 160,000 or something like that. But for the ancient world, a city of 250,000, think with no skyscrapers or uh, anything like that, this is a huge city. This would have been the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind only Rome and Alexandria. So this is a massive uh, city. And the church in Ephesus is really fascinating. Did you know that more was written to or about Ephesus than any other church or location in the rest of the New Testament? Did you know that? More is written to or about Ephesus than any other church or location in the New Testament. In addition, another reason that this is fascinating is because Ephesus is the only city within the New Testament that we kind of have the opportunity to see the life cycle of the church almost run the full gamut from birth all the way almost to death of this church. So I want to walk through that a little bit uh, with us together just so we'll, because we're spending so much time in the book of Ephesians, I think it's helpful to get a little context of what goes before the book and what comes after the book as we read the entirety of the New Testament. So the beginning of the church, uh, we have in Acts chapter 18, Acts 18, I think we'll put it up on the, uh, the board, Acts 18 verses 19 through 21, and they came to Ephesus, uh, this is Paul and some of his companions, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a little longer, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So here we have kind of the birth of the church. We, we find when Paul will later come back to Ephesus that at least some of these people that he had proselytized, some of these people that he had shared the gospel with, had come to faith. And so you have this beginning of the church here in Ephesus, the third largest city in the Roman Empire, and it begins to, uh, it begins to uh, spread out throughout uh, the city until he comes back sometime later in Acts chapter uh, 19. In Acts 19, he stays there for two years, according to uh, verses 54 and 56. And as he's there, the church just begins to explode. It's just this explosion of growth as people come to faith uh, with Paul's preaching and so forth. What's really interesting about uh, Ephesus is, is not only is it this sort of uh, center of commerce, but it's also this uh, center of religion as well. This is the home to the goddess Artemis, who was, according to Greek mythology, the uh, daughter of Zeus and twin sister to Apollo. Her temple was in Ephesus. It's one of the, uh, the seven wonders of the ancient world. And, uh, and so with this in mind, it's no wonder with this, this amount of religiosity that exists within this city, the amount of worship that takes place towards this Artemis of the Ephesians, this Greek god there, it's no wonder that whenever we get to Ephesians chapter 6, there is this entire uh, section on the armor of God and the idea of spiritual warfare. They are in the belly of the beast. They are right in the heart of pagan 
literature and religion and magic and so forth. And uh, there's no wonder that there's this emphasis throughout the book of Ephesians. We'll see it over and over and over and over again about Christ's supremacy over spiritual authorities and rulers and powers and dominions. That's all the more vital considering the background, the context of the city of Ephesus and the, uh, the amount of paganism that exists within this city. In fact, this is the city in which, if you continue on in Acts chapter 19, uh, one of my favorite stories in Scripture takes place. It's called the Seven Sons of Sceva. Are you familiar with that story? Uh, there is, uh, Paul is going around and he is preaching and he is teaching uh, and he is doing all these miraculous acts. In fact, people would take handkerchiefs, people take handkerchiefs and aprons and uh, other pieces of clothing and fabric and so forth and, and, and they would take them and they would touch Paul with them and then they would take them back home uh, to their child or to their spouse or to their grandmother, whoever it was who was sick. And then they would lay that handkerchief on them and that person would get up and they would be well. Can you imagine having that kind of power? I can't imagine having that kind of power. I would definitely abuse it. But I certainly would covet that kind of power and so did these Jewish itinerant exorcists, which is like the coolest business card ever. Jewish itinerant exorcists. That was their job. They go around casting out demons. They hear of this power that Paul has uh, and so they think, we want a little of this power. All right? Our job is too hard as it is. It takes like, you know, six days or whatever to cast out a demon. We want to just be able to take a handkerchief, lay it on somebody, and have them get up and be healed instantly. And so they go to this demon-possessed man, and they say, I adjure you uh, by uh, Paul and the Jesus whom he uh, proclaims. And the demon responds and says, I know Jesus, and I've heard of Paul. I don't know you. And he jumps on them, and he beats them up, and they run away, wounded and naked, all right? Naked. My wife makes fun of me because I said naked. <laughs> naked, beaten and naked. Now, I've not been in a lot of fights in my life. I've been in a couple, not been in a whole lot of fights. But whenever I was younger, if you got into a fight and you ran away with no clothes on, you lost, right? <laughs> that is the definition of losing that fight. This is what's going on here. And so as a response to this, the sons of Sceva... As a response to seeing these seven uh, naked Jewish men running down the street, the church all of a sudden has this deep fear penetrate them. This deep fear kind of uh, infiltrates uh, the church. Why? Because what's happening is these people have been genuinely converted, but we see in the context that they're still clinging to some of their uh, magic books and so forth. Not like Harry Potter or an autobiography by David Blaine or something like that. These are genuine, uh, legitimate, demonic books. Uh, apparently, a number of the people who had been converted had been converted out of being a witch or a warlock or whatever it might have been in that particular context. And so they had clung to these sort of books just as a kind of a what if. What if this Jesus thing doesn't work out? How am I going to make money? i got to have these books just in case. But this uh, incident with the Jewish uh, itinerant exorcist uh, it causes such a fear uh, to, to, to infiltrate, to saturate the, the church there in Ephesus uh, that all the people uh, begin to take their books and collect them together and burn them. All of their magic books are burned. There is such an uproar in the city uh, that occurs as a result of this uh, that the entire commercial trade is upended. 
Because people aren't all of a sudden, they're not buying idols. You know, people are out there selling from their little carts. Buy your Artemis statue. Buy your Zeus statue, whatever it is. So many Christians are not only converted, but they're also sanctified as they recognize that these idols hold no value, no worth, and they're opposed to the kingdom of Christ. That they're no longer buying it, and it begins to cause this uproar in the commerce of the city. And so there is this massive riot uh, that takes uh, place as the entire city is in an uproar. I love that, that enough people are converted and genuinely impacted by the gospel that the entire city feels the effects. I remember uh, eight, nine months ago or something like that, we had a member meeting, and I talked about how that is my hope for McKinney, that enough people are getting saved, not only here at Parkway, but at the Parks Church, at Cottonwood Creek, whatever it might be, that McKinney feels it. Right, that, uh, that uh, Jehovah's Witness uh, kingdom halls are shut down and the Latter-day Saints are shut down, not because people are burning them down or something like that, but simply because there's not enough people that are going because people are coming to recognize who Jesus is. That the mosque that's right over by my house, that that gets shut down. Why? Because there's no one to go. That's the kind of effects that the gospel can have on a city and we see that in uh, Ephesus. And after a couple of years there of this faithful, fruitful ministry, Paul leaves. Now, a couple of years later, probably about five years after Paul leaves Ephesus is when he writes the book of Ephesians. We're now around 61, 62 AD, something like that. First Timothy, if you read the the first uh, few verses of First Timothy, you'll note that Paul is writing to Timothy as he's there in Ephesus, that Paul has sent Timothy there to Ephesus in order to to be a, uh, a, an influence uh, there against uh, corruption and false teaching and so forth. And so in the mid-60s, Paul writes uh, a letter to Timothy. Probably Second Timothy as well is addressed while Timothy is there in Ephesus. Uh, a couple of uh, decades later, you have the epistles of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Most scholars believe that those were written there uh, to Ephesus, that John has now uh, been ministering within the city of Ephesus and that they are uh, written there. So now we have uh, nearly an entire life cycle. First John, second John, third John, all dealing with false teaching. Uh, false teaching in particular that is a, a, direct, uh, a direct fulfillment of what Jerry had talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago. When he talked about elders and deacons, he preached from Acts chapter 20. If you remember, that was Paul's address to the Ephesian elders. And he says, there will be false teaching that comes. What happens in First John? First John is a book that's entirely written as a polemic. It's written as an argument against the false teaching that has come, just as it had been prophesied. And then you see this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent." Yet this you have, that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So you basically have an entire generation of biblical witness to this city uh, in Ephesus, from Acts to Ephesians to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and now Revelation. And Ephesians is kind of situated right in the middle. So that's who wrote it, the Apostle Paul, that's to whom it's written, to saints, to the faithful brothers, those who are in Christ Jesus, united to Christ Jesus, particularly those who are there in Ephesus. Uh, let's turn our attention now to what he writes to the Ephesians, and indeed to us by extension. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps you may have noticed at some point, every single one of Paul's letters begins the exact same way. Grace to you and peace. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. If you don't believe me, go back at some point and look. Romans, 1 Corinthians, all the way down to Titus, Philemon, every single book in between, every single Pauline epistle begins with this call for grace and for uh, peace. Both of these are major themes within the book of uh, Ephesians. Grace is explicitly mentioned 12 times. Peace is explicitly mentioned eight times just within these six chapters. So these are huge themes within the book, but they're huge themes not only of the book of Ephesians, but all of Paul's literature. Again, every single book begins with this same sort of customary uh, greeting. Both of them are kind of related to cultural greetings within Paul's context. Grace was, uh, the, the Greek word uh, charis, was related to the kind of traditional uh, pagan uh, Roman greeting that would have been karine, which means greetings. And what Paul basically does is kind of takes a, a, a regular greeting and kind of Christianizes it, takes it from greetings uh, to grace, that not just uh, this generic greeting do I want to give you, but I'm giving you grace. In addition, peace is this uh, common expression of greeting within especially Jewish cultures uh, where even today there will often be a greeting of shalom, peace be upon you. We see that in a number of cultures uh, today, uh, even in, uh, in our modern culture. Uh, in Arabic, the uh, assalamu alaikum, uh, may, may peace be along, uh, upon you, is the general idea there. Uh, in one of my trips, uh, some of you know that we're about to do uh, a, a mission trip to uh, Romania, and, uh, and so Parkway has had an existing relationship with, uh, with Eastern Romania near Bucharest. Uh, in my previous church, I had a relationship with some, uh, some pastors in Western Romania. Actually, a buddy of mine is here today that was on uh, a couple of those trips with me. And there's something interesting. In Romanian culture, there is a traditional greeting and a traditional way of saying goodbye, and that is you say pace, which means peace. That's the way that you, in fact, there is this uh, passing of the peace. After a service, I'd, I would preach at a church, and then afterwards I would stand there at the door, and everybody that come by would shake my hand, and they'd say pace, and I'd say pace. The next person would come, and they'd say pace, and I'd say pace. This is just the traditional way. You don't say goodbye. You don't say see you later. You don't say that. You say pace. I thought this was a Romanian thing. I later found out it's just a Christian Romanian thing. It's kind of a subculture thing because I met this Romanian uh, girl at a... Uh, harbor at uh, Lake Powell, 
my family uh, and I were at Lake Powell. There was a, a girl who was from Romania, and so we were just kind of talking a little bit because I'd been there a few times. And uh, whenever uh, I went to leave, I said, Pache, and she stared at me like I was some sort of moron. And, uh, and I realized that's not something that is actually a part of the larger Romanian culture. It's just something that Christians say. Uh, it is, uh, it's really weird for the uh, rest of the culture to, for you to just say peace to them. So I learned a lesson in that. Uh, but this is a traditional sort of blessing uh, that Paul is going to give there. And what's really interesting, though, is he's the first person, although this becomes kind of his signature salutation to say grace and peace at the beginning of his epistles, he's actually the first person that we have in history to put these two things together. Kind of the Greek greeting, karine, Christianize it to charis, grace. The Jewish greeting of peace and to put those two things uh, together. What's really interesting is to read that in the context and to, per- and to think, is it perhaps that Paul's thinking of kind of the Aaronic blessing? You familiar with the Aaronic blessing, the blessing uh, that Aaron, uh, the priest, proclaims over the people in Numbers chapter 6? I think we'll put it up there. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. There you have grace and uh, peace. So grace and peace. Grace is an interesting uh, concept. Has anyone seen the, the trailer for the new Star Wars movie? There's a new Star Wars movie that uh, is coming out in, uh, in December. Episode uh, chapter 8. Anyone excited about that? nerds. <laughs> uh, I remember having friends. I was in college when the, uh, the first prequel came out, and uh, I remember having friends who paid money to go to a movie, bought a movie ticket, to go see the trailer. The trailer was over, and they left. They paid money to go see a trailer. Uh, and, uh, and so my wife loves trailers as well. So she would oftentimes, if we're going to watch a movie, she would oftentimes rather just watch like 20 trailers in a row or something like that. But uh, uh, last weekend, after, uh, after Easter services, went over to uh, have lunch with my in-laws, and my father-in-law and I decided we're going to watch a movie together. So I mentioned this one movie that I really love, and, uh, and I said, uh, let's, let's check that out. So he said, okay, let me check on Apple TV. Checks on Apple TV, and he watches the trailer, and it is the worst uh, trailer I could ever imagine. It's a movie that I love, and yet the trailer was so boring, I didn't want to watch the movie. Uh, it was not even a trailer. It was just, they took the most boring scene in the entire movie. This is a movie with a whole bunch of action. Uh, and uh, there's like a bank robbery and there's guns and shooting and all that kind of stuff. And they took this one scene where the cop is talking to his wife. And uh, they just showed 30 seconds of that scene. That was the entire trailer. Worst scene in the movie, just 30 seconds of it. And that's the trailer. And my father-in-law was like, I don't want to watch that. And I was like, I don't either. It's a horrible trailer. What I want to do in my uh, next few moments together is kind of give a little bit of a trailer, a little bit of a teaser, as we're going to spend six months together in the book of Ephesians, a little bit of what is coming in our time uh, together. Uh, Again, I have, uh, I I started by talking about a bobcat for some reason, but this excitement that I felt and this excitement that I feel for us as a church as we have an opportunity to wrestle with some things that not only are going to be theologically controversial and theologically difficult, but certainly culturally. A number of the things that we're going to talk about are offensive in the context of our culture. And we're not just trying to find what's the most offensive thing that we can talk about. That's not our goal. 
But our goal is also not to shy away from those things. And so let me give you a little bit of a teaser or a trailer of what we will be considering. First, next week, right out of the gate, go big or go home, we're talking about predestination. What does it mean that we are predestined? What does it mean that we're elected? What does it mean that we're chosen? Again, we're not just looking through the Bible for what's the most spicy, what's the most controversial things that we can talk about. But it's right there in the text. Predestination, choosing, election. We're talking about this because the Bible talks about it, and not just here in Ephesians chapter 1, but in dozens of places, place after place after place. And here's what we'll see, that the reason that you love Jesus the reason that you love Jesus is because God has enabled you to do so. God has enabled you to do so. And here's the big part that everybody gets hung up on, and it's going to be difficult, and we're going to walk through it together. But he hasn't done that for everybody. He hasn't enabled everybody. He hasn't overcome everybody's natural resistance. That God chooses, chooses those who will respond to the gospel. Again, that's super controversial. That's super difficult. I understand that, but that's what we'll begin to unravel together next week. Another thing we'll talk about, gender roles, chapter five of the book, we'll talk about men and women, how they're absolutely equal in essence, worth, value, dignity, but at the same time, God has given differing roles and responsibilities within the home and the church, and the idea of headship that he has given for men to lovingly lead their wives and for men to lovingly lead the church. Again, this is highly controversial, especially in our culture. Our culture of gender fluidity, our culture where uh, you have uh, potentially uh, the biggest divide that we've ever experienced between radical feminism and radical chauvinism. Where does the Bible land? We'll try to wrestle through those sorts of things uh, together. And we'll find, again, that these are going to be culturally offensive, not because we're just looking for the things that are most offensive, but because our culture is not God-centered. Our culture is not aligned with biblical values. So if we're preaching the Scripture, it's going to rub against the culture. There are places, like if you take sandpaper and you're sanding down something, those places where things are going to stick up, it's going to get rubbed off. That's like our culture. There are all of these places where it is out of sorts, out of alignment with the Scripture, and we'll see that. We'll see Jew-Gentile relations in chapter 2. If you've ever wondered why Christians are free to eat pork and work on Saturdays, why we don't offer sacrifices or command circumcision, Ephesians will talk about this. And we'll see also, in addition to this, as an overflow of this, as an implication of this, race relations today. How do the races, whether you're black or white or Asian or Latino or whatever it might be, uh, what does the Bible have to say to this, especially overflowing from what the Bible says about re relations between Jews and Gentiles in chapter 2? That's a big topic in our culture. What does God have to say about alcohol, sexual immorality? What does he have to say about marriage and par parenting? We'll talk about the depth of human depravity and sin. You'll find out more and more that you are more sinful than you ever imagined. But you also find you're more loved as we begin to explore what the love of God actually is. Not this sort of diluted vision of what love is according to our culture that just sort of upholds tolerance. How can we God follow God's commands without walking in legalism? How are Christians to understand labor 
and work and slavery. We'll talk about spiritual gifts and spiritual warfare. We'll talk about prayer, music, and worship, your speech, your words, anger, envy, pride, sanctification, the foundation of the gospel, how to fight sin. That should be an exciting trailer. That should produce something in you as you hear these topics that we're going to talk about. That should produce something in you similar to what I'm feeling right now as we saw the bobcat in theolo- during theological equipping. And I think I have a chance tomorrow to potentially trap the bobcat. So I'm excited. I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight because of that excitement. That's the excitement that we should feel as a church, as an opportunity for us to begin to expose the book of Ephesians, to have it expose our own hearts our own desires, our own preferences, our own presuppositions, as Zach talked about today in theological uh, equipping. This uh, overview of where we're going should have us on the edge of our seats, waiting, longing. Saturday rolls around. We should be anxious to be back together on Sunday for what the Spirit is going to do among us. Ephesians is probably the closest thing that we have to kind of an overview of Paul's theology. So we've moved now from marching through the book of Mark and we want to look and see uh, how does Paul, looking back on the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, how does he see that overflowing and working in our lives? Ephesians is the closest that we have to that. Some of it will be theologically challenging, some of it will be spiritually challenging, but all of it, I think, if the Spirit will move among us, will be edifying and encouraging for us. And what do all these various scenes, all these various vignettes, all of these various themes have in common? Every single one of them, besides just the fact that they all occur in the book of Ephesians, there's a uh, uniting, linking sort of theme to each of them, and that is they are all dependent upon grace. In order for us to understand these topics, we need grace. In order for us to live out these topics, we need grace. In order for us to embrace these topics, We need grace. Most of us have this weird relationship with grace. I think we can admit it, most of us. We have kind of a love-hate relation of grace. We love to talk about grace. We love to think about grace. We love to read about grace. We love to sing about grace. But we hate to need it. Right? We grew up in this culture where you hear things like God helps those who helps themselves. We hear things like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Our cultural sort of identity and icon is the idea of a self-made man. Not only are these things cliche, but they're contrary, they're counter to the gospel. They're counter to the idea of grace, that you and I, every moment, are dependent upon grace. You want evidence of that? Make your heart beat. You can't. That is grace to you right now. Every two seconds, someone in the world dies. Someone's heart stops uh, beating every two seconds. There's another. Another two. Another two. As an evidence that we are dependent in every area of our lives upon grace. There is nothing that we have that we haven't been given. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Which is why Paul is going to end his letter with a conclusion closing salutation of grace. He begins with grace and peace. But he ends the letter with grace because he understands that everything we have or do is by grace. I'll put it up on the board really quickly. Ephesians 6, 24. Grace be with all of you who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. 
We talked about this literary technique in the book of Mark called an inclusio. An inclusio is when an author will put something at the beginning and something at the end as bookends, and everything in between is related. That's what grace is for the book of Ephesians. In fact, that's what grace is for all of Paul's letters. Grace in the beginning, grace in the end, and everything in between because that's our life. Past grace, present grace, future grace, all of our life is dependent upon grace. Some might even say that the book of Ephesians itself is grace. I heard a sermon by John Piper one time where he talked about that, where the book of, uh, the, 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 the epistle itself is God's grace to us because it's God's word to us, which is gracious. His word to us is always grace in Jesus Christ. Grace to persevere in parenting, grace to believe that God loves me, grace to overcome sin, Grace to love my spouse regardless of whether or not she loves me. Grace for all of the things that we'll examine in these pages. That's the good news this morning, that though we need grace, there's always an overflowing fountain available. In a few moments, we'll sing this song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. And then later, oh, to grace, how great a debtor, debtor daily I'm constrained to be. That's the message of this book. That's where we're going over the next six months. I hope that the Lord begins to, over the the next six months, begins to not only unite our hearts, but allow us to feel this sense of encouragement and excitement as we begin to peel back a new layer, a new layer of the book. Next week, we jump right into the deep end with election. So we hope to see you then if you're ordained to be here. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for an opportunity for us to explore the depths of your grace, your unmerited favor toward us in your son. That every blessing finds their yes and amen in him. And so I pray that you would help us, Lord. You would give us grace in parenting. You would give us grace in our marriages. You would give us grace in our understanding of complex theology, grace in our understanding of work, grace in our understanding of uh, racial reconciliation, grace upon grace upon grace for every area of our lives. Lord, help us. We bless you now as we consider the broken body and shed blood of your son. Would you minister to us as we partake of these elements together? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.